what's up everybody what's up patrons welcome back this is your second episode for the month we're taking a break from fukuyama i know you guys were having the most fun going through high american exceptionalism in the post-cold war era but bragwin and i wanted to come back and talk about some art and to continue our series on robert hughes's shock of the new before it had been so long that we've sort of lost the thread. So where we leave off before we get to the episodes we looked at for this one, which are six and seven, the threshold of liberty, he was sort of talking about the French avant-garde and how it sort of deflates into this sort of self-congratulatory faux transgression. And now he picks up again some themes in episode six that are really about how modernism is trying to look at the world anew. He goes back, he starts with Van Gogh. So Josh, what did you think of this one? Just as somebody who's not as familiar with modernist art. Yeah, this was very educational for me. There were a lot of artists profile that I was not familiar with. And I actually really, I watched it a couple times and I, I, try to get the through line of it because he actually starts it with this discussion of nature and spirit and mm-hmm. and how the 19th century obsession was with the romantic obsession with art was elucidating the sort of spirit that underlies the material form and then with the advent of the death of god in the late 19th century they were kind of at a loss as to that that spirit didn't wasn't underpinned by any transcendental impulse or tether, I guess. And so then everyone is left to, it sort of like collapses into the self, which is kind of where we get Van Gogh's like purely yeah. idiosyncratic view of, 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 of the natural things that he's painting. Mm-hmm. And I think importantly, it continues to be the self in search of an essence. Like one way that I was thinking about this was thinking about very early in this series, he talked about the way electrical elevators, specifically the one in the Eiffel Tower, changed how much of the city you could see and from where. We could say that like railroads did a similar thing for the horizontality of the eye. You could suddenly like move across a distance and basically pan you know, an entire landscape. And what's interesting about this and about Van Gogh and some of the thinkers that he goes through here, it's like they're in search of the universal yet still idiosyncratic like grammar of essence, the geometry of essence. This is something that Boris Groys calls them the weak universals. One of the artists Hughes talks about here is Kandinsky. Mm-hmm. who is really reducing things to their like geometric structure. Rothko is sort of like the like like the high watermark for this mm-hmm. attempt. You see the basic breakup in like three different rectangles or squares or whatever of how you would organize a landscape. And we can think back to Cezanne and Cezanne's attempts to find the image under the image. Mm-hmm. And then you start to sort of see this trajectory of like the human eye having more dynamism and more perspective to deal with and then losing some of its metaphysical mooring mm-hmm. and turning more towards the eliciting emotion as an access to 
these universals, these weak universals. Right, right. And yet he said that Van Gogh is kind of the hinge point of that because Van Gogh still had this quasi-religious or not explicitly religious, but sort of transcendental outlook on things. He still was taking sort of moral cues, mm-hmm. eternal verities, and like putting them into the paintings. The, the painting of the Gleaner was the one that I was really struck by as like a very bright mm-hmm. yellow sun with a, in the background, beating down on a, a field worker who's mostly silhouetted and you know Hughes describes it as the eye of God mm-hmm. and the person is toiling and and you know the the world of becoming is under the eternal yellow of the sun and I thought that was a really I mean you know he's just so eloquent and and the way he puts it all so it's really wonderful and rich to to watch it but uh, but moving on from Van Gogh and then it gets Van Gogh still got that he sort of got one foot in the romantic past I guess mm-hmm and going to Munch, who's completely severed from that. And doesn't yeah, Edvard Munch is like, I mean, he was my favorite artist as a kid. I had a yeah. copy. I had facsimiles of his journals even that mm. had been translated. And he was a really wild guy. And I love that Hughes describes him as like, he was mostly thought of as like a psychotic troll from yeah. Northern Europe. Like it took him a long time for him to be accepted, which I yeah. thought was really good, you know, but it's sort of like whatever you're right, like almost like quasi theological elements there are in Van Gogh. Those just sort of like fall off the back mm-hmm. of Edvard Munch, who's like his work is so powerfully shaped by loneliness, by sickness, as everyone in his family was seemingly sick at all times through his life. Yeah. And his um, sister died young, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, he just has that true Northern European loneliness. Mm-hmm. You know, there's none of that like painting on my vacation in Nice type shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? like not going to the south of France to look at the colors. No. Yeah. And I think Hughes is right to sort of draw the parallel, though, between the colors in the sun and Van Gogh and then what they suggest in Edvard Munch. And they have that <laughs> wild quote from Munch's own journals, I think. Where it's just like the sun is this hemorrhaging wound. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. Um, so incredibly bleak. The one painting he discusses with the young woman in the foreground. And then the, in the background is the sun reflected on the water, but it just turns it into a phallic symbol. Like it's not. Yeah. Yeah. It's like brings, brings the sun down to earth as it were. That painting I found very striking. I have the book here. I think we discussed that last time and mm-hmm. just kind of looking at that with this woman who, really wants to speak but can't quite bring herself to open her mouth and the tension there is i found that very moving and mm-hmm. affecting even more so than the scream which is monk's like classic right t-shirt. it's <laughs> right yeah it's almost become like a meme now you know like we'll get into some of the walter benjamin stuff like later in terms of art in the age of mechanical reproduction but um you know, I remember when I like first really understood what was going on in the screen when I think I must have been like in my late teens or something. Because, you know, you have to like almost learn to see it for the first time. Mm-hmm. You have to, to borrow the, the Sarasian phrase, you have to come at it naively. Mm-hmm. That's really hard for something that you've seen like silk screened. Yeah. I think I had a scream like woodcut t-shirt 
you know, and sure I saw it on TV before I saw it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I was like, thing that strikes me so much about that painting is that the two people in the background are walking away mm-hmm. from the bridge like and there was something about that that helped me understand like the terrible terrible alienation that's mm-hmm. being expressed i wanted to skim through it before we did this but Knausgaard wrote a book on monk recently and i've read a few pages of it it's quite lovely that guy's a pretty hit or miss author but i'm interested in seeing like you know he's like the other most famous guy artist produced by his country uh-huh. So, you know, it was a book um, more about the paintings or about his biography or his both, both actually. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the thing that really puts a damper on this almost like, I mean, there's even something like there's this like negative transcendence in Munch, mm-hmm. you know, right? Like it almost has the shop an hour character to it. So do some of the others who I'm forgetting that he's talks about in this, but what really sort of terminates this whole thing, this, I would say almost like a, like Abrahamic level of alienation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, is what well, is, are the Nazi concentration camps. Right. You know, that's sort of like Hughes taking from Adorno, like is already even possible after the Holocaust and concurring kind of no, not in, not in the way that people had thought of painting before, like what could compete with some of the capital R real images that were being there, being displayed, the evidence of this. Yeah, the the, the, the photography was just unanswerable by painting. There was nothing to yeah. add. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting idea. And I, I thought I was wondering if, I mean, if you sort of did a more, if like diverged from Hughes and went more into sort of some kind of, cultural criticism that intertwined the history and the art of the period, whether, you know, there was something, I mean, I suppose someone would make a claim, you could make a claim that, you know, the Holocaust and the the Third Reich and just the monstrosity of the Second World War was an outgrowth of the death of God. Like it has its roots in that Mm -hmm. phenomenon in European philosophy and metaphysics and just general understanding of man's place in the world that having become unmoored in the late 19th century that the sort of aftershock of that was just like this pure horror that we see in the early 20th right well munch and the others are sort of presaging it in a way like the the emotional or the spiritual sickness i guess that that was sort of falling over the land was being expressed by them and then and then just became photographically inevitable with the Holocaust images. I don't know, just pitching that there. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I've, yeah, I've thought about that. I mean, it's something that we've certainly entertained on this show early on. I think John and I did like, we did a sort of an audio essay on three pieces, one by Boris Groys, which is called like the aesthetics of self-design or something like that. Bradley Bradley Trammell video on I think social media dynamics and QAnon and then uh, Strauss's fa- frankly fantastic lecture on German nihilism hmm. which sort of touches on what you just said where it's sort of like there was no one around who could have even attempted to supply values to the people who 
ended up becoming readers in the Third Reich that could have countered what they were going to get up to. Mm. That things had been so desiccated. And he doesn't use the phrase the death of God, but it's clear that it's sort of moving in that way. So I think that there's definitely another way to look at it in terms of that. And I think that there's also something interesting. He says that like literature kind of survives. It's like Mm -hmm. literature and photography really sort of prevail. And I think that that's very fascinating to me because then it's sort of like, and I don't want to belittle photography or literature, but like, that's almost like the victory of evidence Mm -hmm. over like synthetic creation. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you can fit all of the literature into like a flat file in an archive. <laughs> like, do we yeah. decimal it? You know, like the photography exists in whatever photo morgues or whatever it's in. It has this evidentiary archival quality that painting sort of can't totally assimilate itself into. Yeah. It can hew closer to the the facts as seen. The painting necessarily is going to be adding layer or multiple layers of interpretation, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, and just chronicling it is kind of enough, I guess, that because of the events and the and the facts are so extreme. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, you do get a lot of literature out of following that. The particularly like Frankel, I mean, just landmark. Man's Search for Meaning book. Right, yeah. yeah. And that's just like touchstone. I was reading like some other things recently and it's just every time I delve into any sort of psychological inquiry, it, it just, that's becomes a touchstone no matter what angle it's being approached from. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still such a key pivotal work. But yeah, yeah, definitely. And then I guess in the Hughes narrative, there's some post-war recovery. Well, I guess, I don't know if you want to back up and talk about the, like the pre-war, the urban alienation. That was interesting because it kind of weaved into the episode seven a little more. I was wondering about how he was organizing the the chain of thought here, mm-hmm. but he dials into Toulouse-Lautrec, the alienation of urban spaces, he's watching and being watched, but no one's looking at each other, which I thought was just- Everybody's like, face is a mask. Everyone's face is a mask, yeah. And then this, yeah, the red cocotte. And and yeah, the, the Weimar period, just the constant having prostitutes and street people and the underworld red light districts as the subjects. I don't know, maybe that ties into what we're talking about before with that sickness. Right, well, I mean, I, I mean who better than, than he, who he brings up in this than Francis Bacon? Right, right. You know, and again, like I highly recommend people check out Maggie Nelson's The Art of Cruelty. Her treatment of bacon, I think, is very thoughtful in that. But there is something happening too with the accumulation of images, let's say, right? Early on, when he's talking about Picasso, he talks about basically that how empire functioned as this big Hoover vacuum that Mm -hmm. sucked up decontextualized aesthetic trinkets objects images from all over the world and housed them in europe that's the early museum system and and what that did and, and the markets are like that too and what that did to the eye of the painter you know with all of that and with the victory of the evidentiary of of writing and photography 
also comes a huge influx during the wars, both World War I and World War II, of staggeringly violent images. Mm. Like the amount of daily exposure to horrific images increases like exponentially. So it's not just that people are experiencing these things. It's that they're being mediatized and circulated as well. And I think like the almost dispassionate, curious nihilism of Francis Bacon is really like the apex of living in that kind of world. Mm -hmm. where he's just going through images, photos of butcher shops that are with like images of crime scenes or whatever in his studio. And he's just putting them all together. Right. Yeah. What did you think of that? He runs a clip of Bacon, an interview, an old interview with him where he Mm -hmm. declaims the, or eschews the expressionist label for himself and says, I'm not an expressionist. I have nothing to express. And then it's like, you look at the painting (laughs) And it's just yeah yeah even Hughes is kind of like yeah he's kind of like okay yeah Yeah, I mean I like it's a very strange self-understanding and then the other thing he was looking at the study after Velasquez's portrait of Pope Innocent and he's saying you know I was interested in the colors and the mouth and the teeth and the tongue and the spittle the way that uh, was it the way that Monet would be interested in the color of flowers Mm. but then you look at the painting and it's like just a black maw like right, no and I've seen I've seen it in person. Yeah, like yeah. it is. Ju- it's not like you're like, oh, I mean, I'm sure there are subtleties in the in the blacks just by virtue of it being painted. But like, you're just looking at this like toothed void, right? You know, screaming at you in this totally detached like antechamber of suffering. You know, yeah. I mean, I don't. I think that's just cope. I I think really like what's happening with Bacon and what little I know of him is that like one way to think of what he means by I have nothing to express is that if we think of expressionism as like turning the soul of the self into this prism that reflects back what the eye sees to whoever views the painting, right? That's sort of that that nice transcendent through the particular thing that we were talking about earlier and that Hughes even touches on when we're talking about it, Cezanne, et cetera, earlier. Like maybe a better way to think of what Bacon's doing and why he might say something like that is that he really thinks he's being some sort of like representation machine, Mm -hmm. you know? And what he's interested in is the way in which these horrific things can be represented with each other. And that makes it feel like there's less of a cultivation going on within the self as these images are processed and then put juxtaposed and then recreated on the canvas. You know, you get the feeling when you look at Van Gogh, when you look at, well, let's stick with Van Gogh, that there is this, you know, it reminds me of like the first elegy in, in Rilke's Duino Elegies, where he says something like, you know, there might be like a tree may have needed you to look at it, you know, mm-hmm. like don't die too soon, you know, and there's this idea through those poems of Rilke, who's really one of those twilight romantic modernist characters, that the world is sensitive to itself in a way. And you really get that with Cezanne and Van Gogh and some of these other guys. You do not get that with Bake. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, Bacon says the quote he had in, in the interview that was in the in the documentary was something like, I'm putting this on the on the canvas to stimulate my own nervous system. Right. Which and I thought was like Yeah. Well, I, I initially I was like, well, maybe he's that is the expression of his emotion, but then I was like, actually, maybe he's just numb. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> totally. Yeah. He's putting this on canvas so he can feel anything at all, even if mm-hmm. it's just horror or revulsion or yeah yeah or or whatever i think i think that's right so i have this other and this will tie into uh the next episode which is like hughes being incredibly funny throughout Mm -hmm. i don't think there's a single shot of this second to last episode culture is nature where he isn't about to break out laughing Mm -hmm. like he's can barely containing a smirk the entire time but one of the reasons that it might be that painting is no longer up to the task is that America becomes the world dominant political element and the world dominant culture after World War II, at least in terms of Europe. And there have been no greater patrons of the visual arts than in America, as Hugh says in episode seven, and also no greater indifference to the visual arts as such. Yeah. To the visual world that we live yeah, in. Yeah, the visual yeah. world, yeah. Yeah, I remember that when I was in Berlin and I noticed that there was just a distinct lack of billboards in the, this massive major city. Yeah. And I asked around and they were like, oh, they're, yeah, we have laws against that, you know. And it's just like unimaginable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Right, just, yeah. yeah. Like stunned and I was like wow I can't imagine Americans making laws against advertising you know no I mean they exist as well. they exist in Santa Fe yeah 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 no, and no. in Vermont you're not allowed to do big billboards in Vermont in the urban areas or just anywhere like just in general path. yeah you're not allowed to do them in the state yeah, yeah so as yeah. soon as you cross the border into New York or New Hampshire it's like bam yeah they pop up yeah, yeah. you notice that when you do cross-country drives like which areas have I mean, yeah, I'm sure it was a magic. I mean, I knew at some level they did that in Santa Fe as well. I mean, I grew up in D.C. and they regulate the height of buildings and in the Mm -hmm. downtown area. There's no you can't do that kind of thing. But still, it was just a major metropolis. And there was no sort of if I remember right, there was no sort of Times Square. There's a Times Square analog. You know, there's an area where most people go for entertainments and and nightlife and you know but it's kind of very muted visually you know it doesn't right. it's not meant to dazzle you and tickle your eyeballs as it were so it, in this episode we can sense like a shift in the topos of the question mm-hmm. it's no longer like can art keep up with modernity it is like can art keep up with the market yeah like, that seems to be the real shift because this this episode goes into pop art. But I'd like to sort of touch on the title of this one a little bit because I thought it was interesting. He opens by talking about how nature has been this enduring subject throughout, you know, human history and especially European and Western art history mm-hmm. for millennia, basically. But at some point, it's like we create an environment so synthetic that we end up looking at culture the way we looked at nature. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what he means by culture as nature in this. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like everything we're seeing has been created by someone. And so if we're <laughs> the lens, if you're going to have a person in a landscape staring off in the distance, the landscape's going to be populated by human, right. human made things. And it, the, the transition between the episodes is, yeah, it's, it's like, what's the content of the painting? And then what's, how does painting survive in a, in a place where its historical subject has been completely uh, overrun and, and mm-hmm. papered over? Yeah. 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 How, how, how does that happen? And, you know, he does, a, I think he does a fantastic job of doing this genealogy of pop art and where mm-hmm. it comes from and the early attempts to incorporate Bill Ward's into art because m- many American artists, of course, were living in major cities that were just totally swallowed in light bulbs and advertising. And what does that mean? What does it mean for them to have this sign of their own, you know? And I really enjoyed as he moves closer to like what we call pop art, the sixties and seventies, he just comes right out and says, you know, this stuff can only survive in galleries because it can't keep up with Las Vegas, which he describes as a Disneyland of terminal greed. Yeah. <laughs> All signs selling the same product, which is lack. I love this. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. He's, he was really like, you know, there's this, there's this great shot of him in front of an American donut shop that just yeah. has this enormous donut on it. And he's talking about how some Europeans would look at the American landscape or whatever, and they would get some inspiration. But the American mid-century modern <laughs> artists were like trying to get away from it. And he's like, because they had to live with it. Yeah, absolutely suffocated by it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, That's... it wasn't this like exotic experience yeah. happening in the colonies. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's that's still true. I went to film school in London, and even then, I mean, granted, Hollywood is the, you know, in the English-speaking world, the cinematic juggernaut and the center of the empire, as it were. But And so everybody, it has the gravitational force. Everybody in the film business there, in some level, wants to be over here, you know, doing, you know, it's like, am I going to get big enough for Hollywood? But there's still, even artistically and culturally, there's still this sort of like fascination with it, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and seeing it as something exotic. And I had the exact same response. Like I just saw it as something sort of oppressive, something I was trying to get out from under. That's why I went there. Mm -hmm. And they like found it so like wonderfully tantalizing. And I was just like, no, it's a donut on a box like, <laughs> you know, yeah you don't want to see you don't that understand how many of those there are yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it gets really freaky having the bob's big boy stare at you smiling like the smile never changes and it's very unnerving after decades yeah no it, it, i thought that that was right i mean i don't have a lot to say about pop art generally and i don't think i think hughes basically argues that there's not a lot you can say about it that that's sort of the, and that you know warhol is really the the genius of this mm-hmm. you know i, I mean the, like to me the phrase like the th- quote from warhol where he says pop art is about liking things is like mm-hmm. too per it's like too smart it's like too good Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's perfect. It's just about liking it. It is a culture, Hughes argues, of skimming rather than scanning. 
Mm-hmm. You don't get lost in the painting. You don't try to understand its tensions. You don't stare at it. Instead, you're just looking at the surface of something. And this is what Frederick Jameson brings up in his essay, which then becomes the book on postmodernism. When he compares Warhol's stardust shoes to Van Gogh's peasant's boots. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah. Yeah. And when you see them side by side, I mean, it's so it's, I mean, it's really Jameson at his best, Mm -hmm. you know, like that essay is phenomenal. I had a conversation with Jeff Schollenberger about it over on his outsider theory podcast. If people want to go check that out, but you know, it's, it really is that like that flattening effect. And only the surface is, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 please. I, I wanted to ask you a question. This is an ask an extra moment. Because, you know, like I had a computer in the house when I was a kid, like TV was still part of the language of culture in a way that it really isn't anymore, I would argue, in America. But one of the things that I think Hughes is right to dwell on is the impact of television on the eye and on visual art. And... I, this is maybe this is sort of a silly question to ask you, but compared to your experience with visual culture, media, all of that now, what was it like growing up and really like the apex of TV era, like peak TV? Yeah, that was kind of the the Neil Postman era. I don't know if you ever read Postman, but he, he was a great uh, yeah, amusing ourselves to death, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we, there was none, none of the the screen. Everything he was saying there was, you know, completely accurate. There were also just less channels. <laughs> that was like cable was just coming in mm-hmm. as I was like toward the end of. So, yeah, even I even remember network television. Where there were just three to five to seven channels or whatever. But, yeah, that, I think it 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 made cinema more important. You had to go to the movie, sit in it. We did have home video toward mm-hmm. the end there high school, junior high and high school, I guess. But yeah, I I think all of those critiques, I mean, that it is like the arch sort of postmodern technology because it's purely about scanning, purely about surfaces. And you're not, you don't have to assent to it. You know, if you're going anywhere, if you go to see a movie, you're in there for two hours or you're not, you can walk out. If you go to a gallery, you're in there. But, and you've in some sense said yes to the artwork and made it an agreement to sit with it. You know, mm-hmm. and and that sort of the ubiquitousness and the sort of consentlessness with infinite choice of television. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you don't have any choice whether it's around, but you do get to sort of skim across the different surfaces mm-hmm. facets of the jewel. Yeah, I mean it, that that all was very resonant, and I thought very interesting too that he had that quote from Benjamin in the. 40 Benjamin in the 40s about how deep reflection would be lost mm-hmm. and he died in 1940 mm-hmm. and just exactly what everyone was saying about the internet and social media etc mm-hmm. uh, over the last 10 years everyone's been saying that, that exact same thing and I, I yeah. think there's an interesting question that Hughes doesn't get into can't get into because it's post the time period he's talking about but to what extent is the internet just an extension of television is it a qualitatively different thing or just see this is what i was thinking where when i was watching it i was like to what extent is it is it different and i think the element of participation is what Mm -hmm. changes it Mm -hmm. you know like 
I rarely use the term neoliberal now because I've just seen it used in so many ways with so many definitions. And oftentimes it just becomes this meme for Mm -hmm. bad thing. But one of the ways, and I think this is from Foucault, we can say is there's sort of, you become this entrepreneur of the self. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the change between television and social media, internet life Mm -hmm. is that self-entrepreneurship of seeing and being seen and seeing, you know, So, of course, there is a relationship to that. I mean, that's what's sort of brilliant, again, about Warhol's 15 minutes of fame line. Mm -hmm. There's no world that's where that's more true than America right now, where you have sort of the random fame generator of all these social media apps. But the passivity is no longer the striking element it was when it was huge. TV era, which isn't to say that people are like actively, passionately thinking about everything that they're doing. What I really mean is they're not just sitting on the couch eating chips, mm-hmm. skipping channels. They're posting something. There is minimal level of activity that is happening <laughs> you, here. You can post, like, and share as a right. Exactly. To- yeah. To- which yeah. hey, yeah. which is more access to your relationship with content than it was when you have like five TV stations. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. So the age of mass production in that sense has kind of come to a close because the TV is the mass produced product, right? Mm-hmm. All the content on the channels is is for mass production. I thought that was so great. Those observations about Warhol wanting to become the machine mm-hmm. and his embrace of the blandness and uniformity of mass production was actually like just next level dandyism. Like that was, dude, I, I died laughing. <laughs> yeah. I was, you know, Park started watching part of it with me and we both uh, had to pause and laugh at that moment. It was just, I mean, like, it was hilarious, but it was also like, <laughs> you yeah, know. my mind just exploded. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it has this, it's like, a, it's the heroin flaneur. Right. <laughs> you know, is what it is. Right. Uh, but it's not like the Oscar Wilde dandyism of being the cleverest person or having like the sharpest wit or saying like the most, you know, having the best turn of phrase. It's like mm-hmm. complete uniformity. Warhol totally disappears. I mean, he made himself into a celebrity and like an iconic he like image himself. Yeah. But that, to be yeah. produced over and over again. Yeah. 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 But, but I think that was also not his central thing like in the post-war Hollywood environment a lot of celebrities their 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 content is themselves they are their own performance art oh, it's um, Edie Sedgwick right is sort of the yeah and yeah. she was a factory girl right right but he's still creating an artwork that can be hung on a wall somewhere right there is a mm-hmm. product that isn't him and he Hughes says that in the early one the first one of the first episodes that Warhol was kind of the end, like that was the embrace of the admission that art couldn't really affect anything. Right. Well, he he's he's mm-hmm. right to have those great clips of interviews with Marshall McLuhan. Uh-huh. And the thing that sort of the fait accompli that goes on with painting, Hughes argues, is that they do sort of embrace the medium as the message. But then if that's true, painting just doesn't matter anymore. Right. Because it doesn't matter what you're saying at all. It's yeah. just medium. Like <laughs> the 
the actual content just fades away. Yeah. And then painting is gone. And I think that's an, I mean, that's the thing that I really want to shake you sometimes. Cause I'm like, can you justify this entire series? Like every episode, he keeps coming back to like, yeah, painting is useless. <laughs> like painting can't affect the world. It's completely spent force. Like it doesn't mean anything anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, like, which why is... are you so obsessed with it? <laughs> well, that I mean, that's sort of what's interesting, right? Because he also doesn't strike me as like a complete doomer. He's not like some weird Spenglerian figure either. He's no. far more quixotic than that. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see. You've peeked ahead because you're a cheater on what he has to say in the final episode. And we'll get to that when we get to it. But yeah, I mean, but I mean, isn't that sort of the fair question to ask? Like, why are we even doing this? Why are we even talking about it? This, it to me, it seems like almost like a wind up to the big question of what do aesthetics matter to us now? Yeah, yeah. Well, and he had that great point that even with the the mass production of images, even in the completely human created environment, which is supplanted the natural environment as a subject, none of that answers all of those questions about the duty of representation and the moral quandaries involved. And he mm-hmm. said it actually only multiplies them. And so there, it's not as- And though, amplifies them. Amplifies you know? them, yeah. So it's not as though art becomes irrelevant, even though it becomes ineffectual. Mm-hmm. Like its power is drained, but it's still important somehow. I, I guess the, the, the one sort of touchstone, I mean, it's interesting- Yes, he's not Spenglerian, but he's also like, I felt that his connection to the work in the sixth chap episode, the expressionist basically was less, he was less moved by it in a sense than he was by the pop and the Americans. And there was something like, he was even reveling in like, you know, yes, it's meaningless, but isn't it sort of joyful and fun? And, and I'm having fun just making fun of it. Yeah. And be like a highbrow and like skewering it. And you know what I mean? Like, I think you're totally right to point out that change in tone. But there was a moment in the sixth episode where there's this division between the spirit and matter that devolves onto the self in the early expressionist works and then kind of like converges again in Brancusi. And like he gets very affectionate about Brancusi. I don't know if that part was as memorable to you as it was to me. But I had this moment of like hope where I was like, oh, maybe art is becoming important again. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> or relevant yeah. again, because like Brancusi somehow fused the spirit and the natural world into uh, these sculptural objects that were abstractions, but also like very weighty and unified. Like, like you don't get the alienation. You don't get the division against the self. You don't get the emotional agony of the expression like it's just like these objects are holes unto themselves and there's something very like internally soothing about them Mm -hmm. uh, to 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 spectate and to contemplate and it felt like oh that this division is is now unified and the spirit is restored and then he goes over to Rothko and is like yeah but then but then you've got this guy painting big black canvases in a church and it's just pure nihilism again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or even Pollock. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Who's sort of, he's, he's talking about, I mean, you know, I think he's also pretty generous to Pollock as well. I mean, he tends to be 
as even-handed as he can be, uh, mm-hmm. despite his barbed wit. Yeah, I mean, I think he never gives up looking for what's valuable. I think he just finds less and less of what's valuable the more he looks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's also what the series is a story about as well so mm-hmm. far. And I mean, the thing that I keep dwelling on, especially in this episode, you know, this is going to sound like a tangent, but I'm just going to go for it. I spent a decent part of this year, like listening to Marilyn Manson's Mechanical Animals album, okay. which is like fine as an album, you know. Was that big for you to time when you were visiting it? No, you- no. I was just like, I was like, you know, I never really listened to this one. And then one day I just picked it up on iTunes and I was like, I'm just going to, I just would play it like all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was while I was wrapping up my time in L.A. And it's a very L.A. album. It's sort of after Manson's famous, you know, what does he do now? There's a lot of stuff about being lonely in the Hollywood Hills and doing drugs and being a whore and whatever, you know, and being medicated, all of that stuff. Basically, like everything that is sort of stereotypically a part of that. But I couldn't help but notice he keeps saying things like, you know, she's got eyes like Zapruder and a mouth like Marilyn, Mm -hmm. which is sort of like schlocky, like Mm -hmm. C-tier lyrics right but these things keep happening and i realized that this is you know the album comes out in 1999 it's really one of the last post-war pieces of art Mm. like in my mind like within two years like 9-11 happens and all a bunch of other shit happens and it's a different it's like a dip like obviously there's continuity it's not this radical break but it's like a different world yeah you know that those signifiers just matter way less than Mm -hmm. the twin towers yeah you know and it's almost easy to miss that i think if you've like grown up or lived through some of that like Mm -hmm. there's this way where we look at the near past as totally contiguous with the present Mm -hmm. and what i've been trying to do and what this discussion of television and everything he gets up to because i think the series comes out in like the 80s or something like that is is to try to see the near past as different to me as i would the 1930s Mm -hmm. and i think his discussion of art here really helped me do that for which which past the pop art past or yeah for the pop art past even going into the television era past yeah yeah, I guess that's going back to the generational thing that was harder for me. That that section where he said there's this interact in the McLuhan section where he talked about the interactive display mm-hmm. where you're like learning <laughs> and he's a translation, it's forced fun. It's like the kids <laughs> with like these like fake toys. And I I actually remember, I don't remember exactly where, but I grew up in DC, as I said, and there was the Hirshhorn and a bunch of other museums like that, the National Museum of Modern Art. And we would go to them and there would be those things. As a kid, I remember being (laughs) forced to have fun in those places. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And not, and, and really not understanding it because you couldn't really interact with it. It looked like a toy. It looked like a thing you could have fun with. Right. But it wasn't, it definitely wasn't. Yeah. And then when you went up to it and manipulated it and it moved and you were allowed to touch it, but then there was no like point to the game. Mm -hmm. And there was no clear pedagogic function either. Like you weren't learning yeah. like the 50 states through postcards or something like that, like pop postcards. It wasn't like, right. 
and, and then when he said that it was like the the result is like has the intellectual consistency of cornflakes or something like that yeah it was, it was so great but yeah, yeah i guess for for me that very much like i don't know that took me right back to that and connected me to the the era just prior to it which the warholian Mm-hmm. Jasper Johnsian era, like more firmly, and I was like, "Oh, that was where that kind of linked it for me." Right? Yeah, exactly. Or I was thinking about, you know, with the with the mechanical animals thing. You know, that's when like Manson comes out with the very transgenderized, like fake tits outfit, and it's also like an homage to Ziggy Stardust. That's like the conceit of the album, right? It's Marilyn mm-hmm. Manson and the mechanical animals. Mm-hmm. You know, it, Ziggy Stardust. You know, and the spiders from Mars. And it has this whole glam aspect to it. I will say the dope show is still an amazing song. It's, you know, the, the line cops and queers make good looking models is like <laughs> weirdly prophetic about what like American politics would become in 20 years. It's <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, like when I think about the Zapruder line or whatever, it immediately connects me to the entire media culture and political experience my parents grew up with. Right. You know, like, and I grew up with tons of that stuff. Like I had an uncle who was in the IWW that would take me to Looney Tunes 3D glasses, nickel theaters in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, like I grew up with tons of all of this old pre and post-war media very rare experience but like i think learning to see the world we live in as an outgrowth of yet different from the past is vital and one of the things he's just taught me through this is that like learning to look at art can be a shockingly helpful way to do that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so We'll end it there. You'll come back on next time when we wrap this thing up. And we should do the American history one together because I already ordered that book. Yeah, um, no, I should get that myself. Yeah, so thanks for being here. Everybody stay safe out there. We will catch you next time. I go back to the top house, bring that bitch in the belt down Catching it and I cash out, turn that shit to a stack house I ain't taking no hand out, when they callin' I'm in route All them niggas they been down, blow it back when I'm in town Is it callin' you bitch? I don't really got a check I'm about to flip, all around my head Fuckin' diamonds on whip, I can walk around my neck I just talk to where we live Never get a text. I should not like a team now. I got back on my feet now. I can take out my team down. I'm on my own team now. Niggas hate, I don't see how. Made it out of the dumb side. And I don't even know how. About to put me a bitch now. I took the top off. I'm tipping like hot sauce. I got drink that's clean raw. Let me give me that beef mouth. Hit that pussy like golf ball. I can do this without y'all. I don't know, I got locked up. I go back to the trap house, bring that bitch in the belt down Catching it and I cash out, turn that shit to a stash house I ain't taking no handouts, when they callin' I'm in route All them niggas they been down, blow it back when I'm in town